and welcome back to the Murdy Creative Co. Podcast. I'm your host, Colin Murdy. This is actually going to be the second of the long-form episodes that I'm kind of walking through the kind of autobiography of my life and what I think were the important factors that led up to where we are now. And um, there's a couple of things I forgot from the last episode that my mother very kindly reminded me of as uh, she listened to the podcast and then called me today. Or was it yesterday? I can never remember. She has a whole list of things that she's going to put together for me that I'm going to include in the podcast uh, when I when she finally gets around to it. And then uh, I'll be sure to uh, to to let you guys know what the things I messed up on. But one of the things that she had mentioned was that um, Parker Penn was actually still making pens, including probably even the jotter up uh, up through my middle school and into my potentially even early high school years. Maybe not that long, but uh, it definitely existed for, you know, during my lifetime, it wasn't as old as I had previously thought, or it, it is as old, I guess I should say, but it hadn't, it was, it was still working um, when we were there. So that was very interesting to, to learn. I didn't realize that. Uh, another thing I had kind of forgotten to mention, and I think it actually really matters is, um, it was because of my books that I met my wife. I know that sounds like a very strange connection and it seems almost too, too hard to believe, but, um, it's actually true. I had been making books and I posted about them on Facebook and I posted the Etsy link and Leah, who was my friend on Facebook, but I have no idea how we became friends. We had a mutual friend, um, actually her ex-boyfriend and I had been friends in high school. So that's probably how we'd been friends on Facebook, but she actually found my post and she shared it. And of course I was thrilled about this and she was also very cute. And so I messaged her on Facebook and I was just like, you know, thank you for sharing. And we got started talking and she was talking about how she was working on a photography business that she was getting going. And, um, it was just, it, we, we talked and talked and talked. And then, you know, obviously we, we didn't, you know, we didn't get together then that it took a couple of years later, but it definitely was the kind of how we, we initially met and learned a lot about each other. And then eventually, uh, <laughs> we ended up getting married. So there's a lot more to that story, of course, and I'm sure I'll go into that at some other time. But today, I think I'm going to talk a little bit more about my college years um, and kind of the foundings of the company, potentially even the early days at the beginnings. And I've talked about these in pieces or in, in, in parts over the course of this podcast in different ways. And, and I think I'm going to try to give a bigger and more holistic picture to the, the whole story here, but it, it could be a long one. So hang on there. And thank you so much for all of those who have mentioned how much they like the long form. Um, if you like the long form and you want me to keep doing long form podcasts, let me know. You can send me a message on our Instagram at murdycreative.co or on our website, murdycreative.co. Uh, it definitely helps when you guys have feedback for me. So appreciate that. All right. So I think where we left off is I would I had been working on uh, kind of getting into the world of good, genuine leather, you know, after Dr. Ranero had uh, given me that uh, wonderful piece of heirloom leather. And I had been working on kind of securing my own style, developing my own techniques. And I had started doing that the whole time. But it was when I when kind of went to college, it, my, my ability to make journals died off a little bit in, in that I didn't have the time I needed to really devote to the craft. And so I was going to school and I didn't really know what I wanted to go into. I knew that I liked acting and performing. I knew I liked doing math and science. I thought that was very interesting. I liked history. So I ended up settling on marketing. And Concordia was a good school for me. It uh, They had a, a master's program and a bachelor's program that you could do at the same time. It was called their Business Scholars Program. And if you had a high enough ACT score and a good enough GPA, they basically said, okay, we'll let you take master's courses. If you pass the master's course, will count that towards your undergrad. So essentially you were able to skip forward and if you did it well enough in the, in the higher level class, they just gave you the credits. So 
I, I looked at a couple of different schools. I looked at going to UCLA for their um, directing, uh, like theater directing or, or movie directing. I'd looked at doing um, University of Chicago and their their business school, but uh, Concordia's program with their business program worked out very well for me, and it was um, it was a little closer to home, which I didn't mind at the time. I was uh, I had a, a long term girlfriend, and I liked the I liked the the school. I liked the Christian atmosphere. I liked the um, it, it had a it was big and it had a lot of resources, but it didn't feel like that. The university, if you've never been, and I believe most of you probably haven't, is situated on a bluff that's about 50 feet off the water, maybe 100 feet off the water um, of Lake Michigan. So it's the most beautiful campus you could imagine, and it's nestled in this uh, nestled in this uh, suburb area of Milwaukee. So it's probably about 15 to 20 minutes to downtown Milwaukee if you're driving, and it's quiet. It's very quiet. It's in a very affluent neighborhood, um, so it's very, very well protected. And the campus itself has a, a lot of security on it for a very quiet campus that not much happens on in the way of, of danger. So that was always kind of a nice thing. I always used to joke that if there was a glass dome that had fallen over Concordia, most people would never know. Um, and I liked it there. I, I didn't go to college to party. I, um, I really wanted to, to learn and to get good at stuff. And to kind of hone my craft and become a master. And I I liked marketing for my undergrad because I really enjoyed the idea of being able to develop and hone a storytelling aspect of, of life. And, and I think marketing, if you get into marketing, what you realize is that marketing is not about pretty pictures. It's not about, you know, developing the perfect product. It's not about doing all of the, you know, the right design work. I mean, those are all aspects of it. But really good marketing is about telling a story. And... You know, if you think about companies that do a lot of really good marketing, for example, Apple is a, is a good example of a, a marketing, a marketing company. They um, they tell a story through the way that they they advertise, and they don't tell it like this is our story. They tell it like this is your story. Another company that does that pretty well is Red Bull, and they'll actually factor into this story a little bit later. And I, I like Red Bull for a very specific reason, but um, Red Bull is all about you know, the idea of adventure, right? Living your adventurous life. And so that's kind of a cool thing when you think about it. And as a marketing student, I really kind of dove into that. And I took, I, because of my AP credits that I was able to transfer in with, I was able to uh, kind of skip over most of the gen eds. What really ended up happening was is most of the core gen eds, I kind of was able to skip, but I put all of the other gen eds off to my senior year, basically. And I did all of my, uh, my business school classes right away. Uh, and I like doing that because the business school is always more interesting. And I think, you know, gen ed's well important. Don't get me wrong. They are very important. And I learned a lot in them. Uh, I, I think by the time you get into college, you should be able to really, um, really get into the meat of what you're trying to, to become. So I, I took a lot of courses in that regard. And uh, I never really liked HR. I, I mostly didn't like it because they're, you know, in, in HR, they talk about you know, you're not supposed to ask questions in interviews that don't pertain to the job, right? You can't ask, like, are you religious? You, you can't ask, do you have a family? And I always felt like that was kind of a dumb thing. Like, I always felt like you should be able to ask those questions because it tells you about a person's character, right? And if people think that those don't matter, right, to your work life, you're wrong. Obvious, obviously, if you have a family, that matters in your work life. You know, obviously, if you've got, if you're a religious person and, and whatever your faith is, that affects your life. It should affect your life. It's an important thing. So I never did particularly well in HR because I had strong moral disagreements with the the attitudes. Um, I also kind of felt that a lot of the, the discussions for, for those, those 
classes didn't necessarily revolve around a lot of the, um, I, I don't think they revolved a lot around the reality of business and they, they instead revolved around like the theory of business, like the theory of diversity and inclusion rather than talking about the realities of these things. And I think, you know, that would have been, that would have been more engaging for me. Although I read some phenomenal books. That's where, um, I read drive by Daniel Pink. I read to sell as human in one of my marketing classes. So another book by Daniel Pink that I strongly recommend. Uh, and these, so I, I guess the classes weren't all bad. I, the classes I really enjoyed the most were my marketing courses, of course, and uh, they were very, I don't know how to say this. Teaching marketing is a very interesting thing because it changes so fast. The The basic tenets of it, the basic theory of it kind of never, like that's always the same, but how it manifests is a very dynamic problem. I mean, if you think about it, social media is 10 years old. It's like Facebook was like 2007. It really got going in 2009. So, you know, we're looking at 2019 and I went to, I graduated in 2017. So if you think about when I started in college, 2014 or so, that would have been, Facebook would have been barely like five years old in its reality. And there's, so obviously that, that force, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, that force of marketing has rapidly and vastly shame, shaped the world that we live in today. And I think, I think that school is always going to be behind that. But um, So we didn't talk much about those things. We talked about things like how do you develop uh, product research? How do you do customer service and customer feedback? How do you engage in uh, uh, all sorts of different research aspects of marketing, which I actually kind of enjoyed because I've always been a number guy. So that was kind of my, my early days. I, I did do all of the theater that I could in college. I really enjoyed that. I was Willy Wonka and Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. I was Nick Carraway in The Great Gatsby. It was like, it was a wonderful time. Uh, and I got some really close friends in theater who uh, still to this day are some of my best friends and actually one of them works for us, uh, Sarah. So uh, some of those friends, and the reason why I think it matters is because a lot of those people that you meet in that time of your life particularly, they, they shape the way that you mature into adulthood. Because when you're 18 years old, you don't know anything and there's no way for you to know anything. You haven't done anything. And so the 18 to 22 year old kind of transition. And then I would say from the 22 to 25 year old transition, which I'm kind of in the midst of right now, I'm coming to the end of there's like, I am a profoundly different person today than I was three years ago. And three years ago, I was a profoundly different person than I was, you know, four years before that. So if you think about the friends you make in in those times they they do very deeply affect how you how you think about the world how you interact with the world and so that's yet another reason to pick good friends but <clears throat> the uh, opportunities at Concordia were were very prevalent i think for those who sought them out i think the school had been going through a lot of changes uh, i i had a wonderful course that i was actually it was one of the only courses uh in my entire college career that didn't contribute to me graduating in any way. It didn't count as a business elective. It didn't count for anything. It was just a class that I wanted to take. And it was money and banking. It was a course that was taught by the the dean of the business school at the time who retired or, or I don't know what, he, he moved on after that year. So I'm really glad I took it that year. And his name was uh, Dr. David Borst. And Dr. David Borst was a lion. That was, that's the best way to, I think I describe him. He was this uh, he was a jovial figure most of the time, I would say. He, it was a fun guy, but he was 
a driven, um, somewhat argumentative guy. He was willing to fight. You know, you pick a fight with him in class, he'd fight right back. You know, it was it was a good time. I enjoyed him. You know, he was kind of that alpha. And being dean of the business school worked out pretty well for him. So um, he uh, was teaching a class called Money and Banking, and I really wanted to take it, even though it didn't contribute to anything. And we had a lot of opportunities in that class to study the markets and to study a lot of things. And the final project was uh, something about uh, which of these three, three things would be the best investment in 10 years. And, you know, it's a standard project. But one of the things he said in class actually had a very profound effect on me, and I'll tell you a little bit more about it in a second. Um, what he had said was, he said, the market, you can't time the stock market, but the market is normally down on Monday and up on Friday. And I said in my head that th- those two things are mutually exclusive, right? It's either that the market is down on Monday and up on Friday, or you can't time the stock market. Like, those two things can't be true. So... I, I set out that night, kind of ignoring everything else and all my other responsibilities, as is my 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 way, and I, uh, I, I started with a Vanguard portfolio, a mutual fund, that I had access to the, the information for. And so I went and around the last six months, and this would have been, oh, 2014, probably 2015, um, I ran the last six months of data, and I said, okay, I'm going to write a program that's going to calculate if you bought Monday, or if you, if you bought Monday and sold Friday. So you bought when the market was theoretically down and sold when it was theoretically up every week. And you did nothing but that versus buying and holding. Would you be better off? And like this took me to like, I, I walked out of the class at three in the afternoon and I didn't finish the writing the program until like, and do all the data until like three that morning. Uh, and the next morning I walked into his class and I said, or not in his class, I worked into his office and I said, uh, Dean Boris, can I, can I do this instead for my final project? This is what I found so far. And I think there's something here. And, uh, as a, any good professor says, he said, sure, uh, but make it good. And so what I ended up doing was I took and ran a, I, I crafted a, an Excel document folder format thing that was, it was 10 different tickers. It was it was nine mutual funds and Berkshire Hathaway A. For those of you who don't know, Berkshire Hathaway is kind of like the gold standard for stocks. It's always done well. It's, you know, it's it's made its people a lot of money. Uh, Warren Buffett is the Berkshire Hathaway guy. So the idea was I'm going to take nine mutual funds, uh, small cap, mid cap, large cap. Uh, I'm going to take a uh, healthcare. I think I did mining. I did uh, government bonds. I did um, uh, one that was a target fund for like retiring at 60. I did one that was, I can't remember all of what I did, but the idea was I was going to get mutual funds that represented a broad variety of investments and investment vehicles. And I use mutual funds because they're more stable than stocks, theoretically, because they're a conglomeration of stocks. So a mutual fund you buy, if, if you buy into a mutual fund, what you're really buying is, is you're buying a, a group of stocks that some portfolio manager thinks is a good combo. Right. So rather than saying, I'm going to spend $100 buying this stock, and then you're kind of, it goes up and down with that stock, you say, I'm going to buy $100 of this mutual fund, which has $1 invested in this stock, $1 invested in that stock, $1, et cetera, et cetera. So essentially, it diversifies your risk. That's the idea of a mutual fund. So I thought to myself, using mutual funds for this analysis will, it will create a more, uh, a uniform, a more uniform option. 
And I wanted to make it so that when I was writing this, because I'd done a little bit of computer programming, I thought I could write it in, in Java, but I decided to write it in Excel instead, um, partially because I just knew that Excel could handle that data better, and I knew that I would be more, it would be more valid data if I ran it in something like Excel. And the good news was I, I wrote it specifically so that I only had to write it once, and then I could just run the ticker, and it would automatically redo the formulas. Uh, and so um, the... The data, when I, when I finished it out, I think there was over 900 pages of data tables. And I, I, I had run the formula to say, okay, let's do 10 years from 2004 to 2014. Let's do six years, which is 2008 to 2014, right before the crash. Let's do 2009 to 2014, June to June, which was right after the crash, the bottom of the crash, actually. And then I did 2011 to 2014. And then I did each year, year over year, as an analysis of, of that. So all in all, we had a pretty good, solid set of data, good set of years, kind of a nice smattering of a really high growth period, a really serious crash. It was a, it was a good project. And the 900 pages of graphs and tables were, they told a very interesting story. And I did Monday, uh, by, by Monday, sell Friday, by Monday, sell Wednesday as a kind of a, uh, a control group, and then buy and hold. And how would you do over that time period? And I'm not going to tell you the answers because I might actually end up using this as a foundation for Merdy Financial someday. So it was a an interesting project. I, I will tell you it's not quite as simple as I thought it was. Um, and the project got very, very deep and very detailed very fast. So I show up on the final my, my final day and I um, for the class and I was supposed to present. I'm supposed to present on this, and I had like 20 or 30 minutes to present on it. And we ended up. Go, I ended up going through all of the data I found, all of the details, all of the interesting little. If there were, there was a couple of them that had some sort of uh, counter cycle, interesting things, and there was all sorts of kind of I would call them very unique and neat things that I wanted to go over. And I explained the logic behind the design and all of the hybrid analysis that I was working on doing to try to figure out how to predict these things. And the, I mean, I ended up going for like 45 minutes and talking about this stuff. And at the end of it, Dr. Borst, you know, we, they, they asked questions and I answered them and, um, you know, Dr. Borst sat, you know, sat there for a second silently said, uh, to everyone who was in the class, this is the beginning of his doctoral thesis. And he's probably not wrong. I haven't actually finished, you know, thinking through it, but I could actually probably use that as a doctoral thesis if I really wanted to. And I, I kind of do someday potentially because I like doing the research. But that was my first big introduction um, in a business sense to the value and power of analytics and of data and dealing with big numbers and learning something from those numbers. And I think if I wouldn't have done that project, I don't think I ever would have truly I think come to terms with why that data matters and why you can't just do things you like. Um, and I think the reason why I would I say that is because there's a lot of advertisements that I really like, that I think are really pretty, that I think will be tell a great story, <clears throat> and they do very poorly when they actually go out in the market. And I wouldn't know that they were doing poorly unless I had the data to look at. So. That was my first real introduction to, to data as a tool and a powerful tool at that. I also was part of the uh, student government. And I, I, I will say that overall, I enjoyed my time in student government. I had, I had a, personally had a pretty controversial opinion about student government. Um, while I'm a relatively fiscally kind of conservative person, 
I did not think that the student body government should be fiscally responsible. And I, I do think they should be fiscally responsible. That wasn't actually the wrong way to say it. I think they should be very fiscally responsible. In, in doing so, I thought they needed to spend their entire budget every year because the student government is able to collect fees from current students with the express purpose of spending that money on students to better students' time at Concordia in that fiscal year. Like, that seemed like just pure logic to me. So I had a lot of ideas for ways to spend that money and develop that and kind of do things with that money. And most people just wanted to put it in the bank for, I don't know, some other day. And that seemed dumb to me. So I, I had my my own fair share of fights at and the student government, and I actually enjoyed it. And I was an um, organizational senator, so my job was to represent the organizations to the Senate body and, and, on, and kind of lobby on their behalf for more money. And anybody could form a club in the... Uh, in, in the student charter. So in the student government charter, the way it worked was you could form a club. All you needed to have was someone who would lead it. And then you needed to have like 15 signatures or something like that of students who might participate in it. And that's a pretty low bar. And then you automatically got a thousand dollars to spend and you didn't have to like justify your budget potentially to that anybody for that. You, you did have to like, you couldn't spend it on, you know, drugs or alcohol or any of that kind of stuff, but you could spend it pretty much to the most part, however you wanted. And once that money ran out, then it was on the organization centers to lobby on your behalf to be able to get more money from the Senate and to be able to spend it on more things. And like I said, my my idea was pretty much always to help the organizations get more money because that's why we collected it in the first place. But anyway, the, um, the advantage of this was I pretty much knew the Senate bylaws in and out. And that came into play later when it com- came to developing my first business enterprise. And it also came in play later when I was developing my, my work with Dr. Sem. So my time with Dr. Sem uh, was, it didn't really kind of kick off till later in my college career. But one of the things that I was, I was able to do was I was able to become his graduate assistant. And I really enjoyed doing that. He was a great mentor and, um, you know, I'll tell you more about him in a little bit, but he, one of the early projects that we had started doing was he wanted to develop more entrepreneurship on campus. And that was right up my alley because as you might guess, I'm pretty into entrepreneurship. And so I, um, was kind of initially part of the way we helped was I was trying to develop what was, we originally called CMAX, Concordia Multidisciplinary Accelerator. Uh, and the whole idea was that we would help get people from different disciplines to join this club, you know, nursing, education, all these different things to help create new ideas and new business ideas that could help further those different areas. Because there's a lot of innovation to be had in any of these different areas and getting people who know business together with people who, you know, have ideas or are in different disciplines can really create a valuable, uh, valuable connection. So, that was the idea behind the club. And so I was the org senator who helped put it all together. And I think it was a really good idea on paper and it was really fun for like the first two meetings. And then it kind of all fell apart. And the problem why it was, is that it was pretty much me just trying to lead the charge at the time. And there was a lot of pushback from the Senate cause well, I had bad blood, but there was other reasons too. And I think part of the challenge with the part of the challenge with developing a, a, club on campus is when, as soon as the leadership leaves or as soon as the initial leadership loses any sort of kind of push towards it, not a lot of people want to step up and lead a club. So that was always a difficulty that we had to, we had to figure out. But I, um, 
I was pretty excited about what CMAX could become, and, and I really wanted the entrepreneurship on campus to take off. And at this point, I was kind of getting into my master's classes. This would have been my, the beginning of my junior year, and I was really enjoying my master's classes because they got much, they were much more hands-on, and I was in class with students who had been out in the workforce for a little while, so they had their own ideas and the own things they brought to the table, and so I really enjoyed the discussions that we came out of that. But there was this one class that I took with Lars Luander, and I love Lars. Lars is a very nice guy. I believe he's Swedish initially. I think he was Swedish, and I think he immigrated over the country. And he um, he is the kind of guy that has so many stories to tell that almost you just can't believe because they're so completely outlandish. But he backs up his stories with facts that couldn't possibly be known unless it was the person who was telling the story that was there. So it was it was very cool to be in class with him because he would always kind of tell these stories. He also was arguably one of the most intelligent people I'd ever met. He was a very wonky guy. He had a he had a, a knack for very detailed, deep, difficult financial tools. And that, by the way, if you're that kind of a person, more, to, more power to you and God bless you because that is a really difficult part of business is, is kind of unique and niche marketing financial tools. And I thought that he was like, I... I consider myself a relatively smart guy and that class my eyes were just glazing over but I had him for a couple undergrad classes and then I had him for one of the management master's classes that I was taking for my management degree and my master's program and it was it was this I don't really know what it was actually like the class was supposed to be about but what the entirety of the class was was to put together uh, a regulation D which is a, a form that you give to the SEC and you give to investors if you want to start a company and you want to collect angel investing money, right? So angel investors are people who are worth over a million dollars. Once you're over worth over a million dollars, the SEC doesn't care if you throw away your money um, on investments. So that was where you had to do this. Now you had to prepare this document. It was like 70 pages long and most of it was legalese and most of it was form, but a lot of what it was, was building. You had, so with this form, which is a real form that you actually have to give to the SEC if you're actually trying to raise money, one of the things you have to do is you have to very, very carefully detail a business plan with a business model, with financial tables. You have to include everything that you would need to potentially disclose to someone who would become a partner in the company. And when you think about that, that's actually a pretty daunting exercise because at least for me, a lot of the business happens on the fly. Like I figure out what I'm going to do next as it's happening. You know, a lot of the planning I do kind of goes out the window the second we actually have to accomplish anything. And so for us, for me particularly, it was a very difficult project. And the idea was you could work in a group, but I didn't really want to work in a group because I don't like group work. I, I, it's not that I don't play well with others. It's just with group work, nobody ever l- learns anything and everyone just kind of passes the buck. So I wanted to do it myself and <clears throat> I had plenty of ideas, so I thought it would be pretty easy. I'd been uh, sketching out ideas in my books for a while and, and a lot of these ideas were really cool ones that I wanted to kind of try and see if I could make a business model out of. And one of the ideas was going to be, it was right in the height when this, when I was taking this class, it was right in the height of the um, STEAM, STEM educational um, kind of craze when everybody was try, trying to be part of the, that model. And I had a, a project that it, it, in and of itself, it's a relatively simple and small project, but what it was part of was a much, much bigger uh, business plan that is part of my 50-year plan for dominating the world and all that other good stuff, and I'll get into that someday too, but 
the idea was it's going to be a circuit board with a fractal antenna built into the circuit board. And it was going to have a whole bunch of different components that helped convert the AC energy that the fractal antenna pulled out of the air from wireless and Wi-Fi signals and cell phone towers and radio towers. It would pull that all out of the air and then it would convert it to DC power. And you could use a potentiometer, a slide potentiometer, to kind of determine how much power was in the air. So you'd slide the little slide, and based off where it, it at what point the LED light turned on, that's what how much power was in the air, right? <clears throat> and I thought this was going to be this awesome project, because you would be able to buy them in a kit. They would actually be relatively cheap to make, but you'd be able to buy them in a kit, and then once you had the kit, you could have your class put it together, right? If you're a science teacher, you have your class put it together. You teach them basic circuitry. You teach them basic electronics. You can talk about Nikola Tesla and his idea about power transformation, wireless power transformation. You can talk about fractal antenna and how fractal geometry is vital to cell phones. It's vital to the way that we build industrial uh, internet and radio systems. I mean, like fractal geometry is very cool. Um, and then once everybody had built their little fractal things, what you could do is you could map out your city, you could break it up into grids and you could have the students go to the different areas of the city and map out how much RF power there was. And if you found that there was a particularly high amount of radio frequency power in the air, you could set up little towers to continuously harvest it, right? I thought this was going to be this perfect, amazing project. So I built out all of the... The design work, I built out all of the different modules, I figured out how the business model would go, I figured out what the costing structure would be, the pricing structure, all of the different um, marketing techniques we would do, all the different trade organizations we'd want to work with, all the different teachers organizations we'd want to work with. I mean, I did all of the work. And about two weeks before the project was due, I'd finally gotten all the components because I had the custom make, I had custom make made circuit boards sent to me that I designed myself. And I got them to me. And I put the first one together, and it didn't work. And that wasn't good, because it really needed to work. So two weeks out before the project was, was due, I, I basically had the project basically finished, and the board didn't work. And I tried to figure out if it was something, if my design was wrong, which to this day I still don't know, but um, <clears throat> the, the short of the long was I had to come up with a new project. And... I mean, this is a huge document. I had spent a lot of time on it, but I had to come up with a new project before it was it was going to go. And so I was lying in bed in my dorm room that night and thinking about it, and I was being kept up by this little Tabasco jar that was the size, I mean, it's no bigger than your pinky. And it was filled with a special industrial glow powder that I had purchased as a gift. And it was, a, the I, I, I'd made a bottle for myself, I made a bottle for my then girlfriend, and I made a bottle for my best friend from high school. And so the idea was that, like, you know, as long as you have this, our, our friendship, our love will glow. And it was this, you know, cheesy idea. But the um, the thing was sitting on my, my nightstand, and it was, it was this tiny little bottle, and it was filled with this glow powder. And all it had been doing, it had been charging in the light of my, my dorm room. And then I turned my light off my dorm room and it was bright enough to cast shadows on my dorm room wall. And this is like a 10 by 12 foot room, right? So it's not huge, but a bottle the size of your, your finger casting that much light to cause shadows on the wall. That's, that's a thing, right? I, I, the idea hatched in my head because not more than two weeks before that, I had been at a woman's conference with my mother and we, we'd been doing a very famous, um, sketch between uh, two comedians 
that had done it a long time ago. I think it's Elaine May and um, Nichols, whatever the guy's name was. He had done, they'd done one where it was a mom calling her son who was a rocket scientist. And I did that sketch with my mother and it was just so much fun. But standing backstage at that event, two weeks before this, the, before the night with the, the, the glow tube, I had been talking with Pastor Renke who was a deaf pastor. He wasn't actually deaf, but he he did deaf ministry in my growing, the church I went to growing up, but then he also went over to Ghana, Africa. And I was telling him about my power module and this energy and how the RF energy that I was working on capturing in places where there, weren't, where there wasn't a, an actual grid, like a classic grid like in Africa, it could be this amazing thing. And he said to me, he said, you know, Colin, the problem is over there... It's not so much power that's the problem. It's there's no light. Like they have power. They don't have power either, but they also, the thing they need more is light. It's so dark. And I'm like this. So, so I'm sitting there in my dorm room two weeks later thinking about what project I could possibly do. And I had this glow bottle and like the light was keeping me up. And I thought to myself, wait a second, there's something here. And so I went and did a lot of research on, and, and the, there's a very famous World Health Organization study that was done in 2012 that showed that more people die in the developing world from a lack of electricity than die from AIDS, HIV, and malaria combined. And you think to yourself, well, that's not possible. Uh, you can go look it up. It's a 2012 world study. What it found was that kerosene, which is used for both cooking and for lighting in the developing world, is it can directly be connected to um, a significantly higher rate of ch- childhood pneumonia, which so most of the people that die are children, and it also causes ischemic heart attack, pulmonary embolism, um, and, and that's only based off numbers of reported numbers from hospitals, which if you can imagine, the people in those countries, when they get sick, they don't necessarily go to the hospital. A lot of them probably die at home. So the numbers could be significantly higher than that. And then they had in the study, like where the, where, what, what the rates of light, um, what the rates of, of electrification were in Africa and in Asia. And I'm just like, the numbers were mind boggling because at that time there was 340 million people in China that didn't have electricity. 340 million people in China. That's more people than there are in the United States at the time. So like there were more people in China without electricity than there were people in the United States. Right. So I did this whole all of a sudden I'm like, okay, I can figure this out. So what I designed was I designed and I invented the specific way we like the innovation wasn't the wasn't the specific glow tube that I invented. It was the way of coating the inside of the tube with the glow powder. That was uh, something I'm still to this day quite proud of uh, and took a lot of innovation and a lot of trial and error. And I still think if you go to Concordia and you go to Coburg, and you go to the first floor, I think it's five, or so it's 121. And it's, if you go into 121, the rooms were suites. And if you go into room D, that was my, that was my room. And I would be willing to bet that if you turn off the lights in room D, in 121 in Coburg, to this day, the floor, the ceiling, and the walls probably all still glow from the splatter painting that had happened when I was using a drill to try to, to paint the inside of these tubes evenly. So that's a fun little trivia piece, but the, the 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 whole innovation process was was for me one of the most fun things I'd ever done. I was trying to figure out how to get it so that this tube was something that could be go. So the idea was there's going to be a six inch polycarbonate tube, right? That'll be like a PVC tube, PVC pipe, like that. Think that, but it's clear. 
It's coated on the inside with this glow powder, this industrial glow powder. And at the end is attached a lamp, and I called it Via Lamp because it was a little play on the word that vial, like I had a little vial of the glow, glow, glow stuff. But the, um, <clears throat> the lamp itself, you, it, it ran, the first version ran on batteries, and then eventually the second version ran on solar power. But the first version ran on batteries, and you would turn it on for like two minutes, and the tube, it was like a regular flashlight. The tube at the end of the tube was open, so you could actually use it like a flashlight. But the tube also had a diffusing effect, so you, it would be like a lamp. And then when you turned off the, the, the powered part, the electrical part, the tube itself would glow like a little mini lightsaber for like, with like two minutes of, of, of actual powered glowing, you could get 45 minutes of usable light where you could read by it. Now, if you think about it, most people in the developing world don't have a lot of reliable electricity and they also don't necessarily want to have the candles and flames going at night. So when do most people do most of the educating? When do the people do most of their educational stuff? It's in the evening and they do it by light. And the problem is, is so my thought was, is not only does this help reduce the amount of smoke inhalation that people are getting, but this lamp could help people read in the evenings, right? Read into the evenings and, and learn and better themselves, right? <clears throat> and I was very excited about this and I was all thrilled about it. And at the same time that I was working through this project, so I, I ended up rewriting my entire proposal. I had a prototype ready for the class two weeks later. And I, I mean, I worked way too hard on that project. But at the end of it all, I had a project. And Lars told me, he goes, this is an idea that you could actually do something with. And I was pretty thrilled about it because I wanted to do something with it. I knew that we couldn't, like, the, they were too expensive to sell directly in the developing world. But I thought we could do like a Tom's model where it was like a buy one, give one away model. And that's what we ended up doing. And by we, I mean I. I, I always use the royal we. But it was pretty much just me at this time trying to figure this all out. So Dr. Sem, kind of on an unrelated note, but sort of in a related way, had been working on getting the uh, a launch program ready for entrepreneurship, an incubator. And so it was called CU Launch was the name of the project. And it was all about, like, you could win $5,000 of grant money to start your project. <clears throat> and I was like, this is perfect. This will be how I get my company launched. And I'd also been, you know, working on getting CMAX going, so it seemed like a nice fit, and I ended up getting, I ended up going and pitching what I, exactly what I pitched in class for my project, and I went and did the whole spiel, and I presented them with the problem and the solution and everything like that, and I won. So I had $5,000 that just kind of showed up, and <coughs> I think one of the, one of my one, my one criticism of the course, uh, or of the CU launch program was that, at, and this may have changed since then, it's been couple, several years now, but the first year they did it, it's like I won, they wrote me a $5,000 check, and then nobody ever asked another word about it. Like nobody ever asked about how it went, like if I ever did anything with the project. So yeah, that was kind of, it, it kind of felt like you were like on your own. And I mean, I guess I was when it come, came down to it. So I spent almost too much money out of that $5,000 on a video that I put on Kickstarter. And I'd be willing to bet you still can go on Kickstarter and search Violamp, V-I-A-L-A-M-P, and find it. And I'm almost 100% positive the video is still up on YouTube um, of me, little Colin, doing uh, my pitch for the Kickstarter campaign, <clears throat> which is kind of silly now, but um, it's yeah, it's probably still up on Kickstarter and probably still up on YouTube now that I think about it. But so I did this, I launched this company and I 
did all this prep work and I put it on, on, on Kickstarter and I had photos of it and I had options and everything was going to go great and I was thrilled about it. And then and I, I thought this was going to be a, a Kickstarter campaign that brought in millions of dollars, right? This seems to me, it seemed to me like the perfect Kickstarter, like just that, that social justice warrior, like it was, oh, it was perfect, right? We're helping the poor, buy one, give one away, social entrepreneurship, you know, helping the world. Like I thought that was going to just sell like crazy and it didn't. I thought we were going to hit our $20,000 goal within the first three, three days, four days, maybe. I thought it was going to be just the easiest thing in the world to get $20,000. I thought to myself, look, the lamps are $20 a piece. I got a thousand friends on Facebook. This is going to be easy. Boy, was I wrong. It turns out I spent way too much money on the video part of the ad, of the marketing. And I didn't have enough money really at the end to do what I needed to do, which was to spend money on the people who promote Kickstarter campaigns. The second I started my Kickstarter campaign, what ended up happening was is about 20 different companies contacted me saying they would be willing to promote my Kickstarter campaign on their Facebook page or on their Instagram group or whatever. And, you know, I didn't do any of them. I did. I was able to get on the radio and talk about my thing. That was just because I had a connection with somebody. I was able to get on the radio and talk about my project. And I did as much as I could on Facebook. And I, you know, did my best to kind of build it in those, those arenas. But I didn't realize that you have to have the marketing behind it. Otherwise, it doesn't go anywhere. Right? The idea that you can build a company just organically on word of mouth, particularly from nothing, is is that's such a non, non-starter. non There's just no way you can do that. And I think a lot of small businesses still struggle with that idea that you have to spend money on marketing to get money. Like you can't, like word of mouth is such a small aspect of the overall marketing pitch. And I had gone to school for this stuff. Like I, of all people, should have figured this out. But I didn't. <clears throat> also, halfway through the campaign, I realized I needed to upgrade the lamps that the lamps that I was originally going to go with and I had originally set up the pricing on were not going to work. I couldn't find a regular supplier and I didn't like the quality of them. So we boosted the quality of the lamps and I found a new supplier. The problem is they were a lot more expensive. The new supplier was going to be much better for us, but they were going to be more expensive and they were actually going to be too expensive for the price point that I put on Kickstarter. Like I wasn't going to make any money on the Kickstarter, period. Right? We were actually going to probably lose money on some of it because we were getting too many international orders. And the international shipping, by the way, is absurd in case anyone's curious. So I had a dilemma on my hands. I, at, in one way, I really wanted the Kickstarter to work because that, you know, you always want your Kickstarter to work. And then the other way, I really didn't want my Kickstarter to work because we would have been in a lot of trouble. But anyway, the Kickstarter didn't work. We got about 10000 of our $20,000 goal. Now, what I ended up doing was, of course, immediately setting up a website and using what little money the company had left um, to be able to do um, pay for the professional website with the professional domain and all of the inboxes and everything. I set up the LLC for Murdy Global. Um, and uh, we were able to tell all of our Kickstarter backers, look, here's the deal. The Kickstarter failed, but we have some of the lamps for sale on our website. Go and purchase them if you'd like. And we were able to convert probably, well, not 70%, but probably closer to 65% of the people. So out of the $10,000, we were able to kind of do about $6,000 in sales almost immediately. And that fueled, I told them we wouldn't be delivered for three or four weeks, and we were able to actually get basically all of that first batch delivered, right? 
Now, I thought to myself, okay, as soon as these things are out there in the market, having a good little Facebook presence, not doing very many ads, but doing a little bit of Facebook presence and getting these things out there, the word of mouth, the organic marketing will be enough to get this thing going, right? I was absolutely wrong. I had a problem. The $20 was too much for most people who wanted to donate to spend. Like people who wanted to help the poor didn't want to spend $20. That was too much. And the other market that this would have been good for, the people that could actually use the product, was the camping industry, and they thought $20 was too cheap. So I thought to myself, I'll launch a more expensive version of the product, which is the classic little solar panel battery-powered thing that you see now, and that was called Solamp. And I ended up realizing pretty quickly that the solar part of the lamp was a cool, but they... You know, they weren't going to be, you know, campers weren't going to like them either. And so what ended up happening was I just literally donated all, I mean, Lee and I, when we moved to this place, I think I ended up donating the last of the soul lamp supplies and they were 200 lamps still. I had 200 lamps left over, but I spent a lot of money building up inventory. I didn't spend any money really on marketing. And as you could probably predict, the company didn't survive didn't survive for a lot of reasons I want to clarify because it wasn't just my own stupidity although that definitely played a part but at that time I was taking the summer or the spring of my senior year when this was kind of all coming to its you know the summer of my junior year was when this or the summer of my senior year before my senior year was when a lot of the soul lamp stuff got kind of going right and by the fall I, I knew it was starting to peter out and we were having trouble keeping it going the spring semester of my senior year, I was taking 25 credits, most of them master's courses. I was working two jobs, one at the country club as a waitstaff in the evenings. I was also working during the day for Dr. Sam as his graduate assistant. I was also Willy Wonka in Willy Wonka on the Chocolate Factory, and I was planning my wedding. So I had a really busy life, as you could imagine, and I didn't really have any time, and something had to go, and Solamp or, or, or Murdy Global wasn't doing particularly well anyway, and so I kind of just sunset that. I still think MurdyGlobal.com exists, but I think it directs to the new site currently. I don't know, actually. I have to go double check. But anyway, <clears throat> the, the company was um, an awesome opportunity to learn, and it was, frankly, very vital in the success that I'm currently experiencing because it really was important to, to talk through all of the many, many little details of what matters in business. And marketing, actual paid advertisements, should never, ever be forgotten. That was so important. So as this, as this project was sunsetting, right, as Murdy Global was beginning to sunset, a new project kind of was on my horizon. I'd been thinking about my books. I'd really been missing making books. And I ended up going back to my leather supplier and buying a big full hide with basically whatever was left of the Murdy Global money at the time, which wasn't much. And I ended up buying a big hide. And I just thought to myself, you know what? I'm just going to go back to making books. I mean, as a hobby, I liked doing it and I missed doing that. And, you know, I just, I loved it. I got this beautiful hide that I just, the one thing that I think is the most sad thing about leather is every so often you'll see a batch of leather that'll come through and it's not so much anymore because we're getting better at making all of our batches like this. But in the old days, I'll say back before I had a good supplier, I would get this leather and it would be like this amazing, beautiful, perfect batch of leather. And then it would be gone and you'd, it would never come back. It's like a good bottle of wine. Like you drink it and it's gone. Like that was the way it was with the leather. Right. So, um, 
but I had gotten this beautiful, it was this red, it was this gorgeous red and the, the surface texture was perfect. And I still think I have some of it somewhere. I think I ended up making my, the journal I used at my wedding, I think I ended up making out of it. So, um, but I had this beautiful piece and I was coming up, I was probably going to finish, I was graduating. And when you graduate from, I was graduating from my master's program and my bachelor's program at the same time. I actually got, fun fact, I got my master's degree before I got my bachelor's degree by one day because the master's degree ceremony happened one day before the regular undergrad one. So that was always kind of funny for me. But so I'm, I'm, I'm finishing up and I'm going to be graduating here. And my graduate assistant contract came up in June. So I was working through May and then I was going to be done in June because that's when the contract, because you can't be graduate assistant if you're not in the graduate school, which makes perfect sense. Um, and I knew I wanted to give Dr. Sam a gift you know, my, my boss, my mentor, and uh, a very good friend. Um, I wanted to give him a gift because I would say Dr. Sem had one of the most profound influences on me as a leader uh, by me being his graduate assistant. He, he showed me, so I had always kind of grown up in the, the mindset that all bosses are kind of like Dr. Borst, and I love Dr. Borst, don't get me wrong, he was an amazing leader in his own right. Like he had huge, powerful skills. He was a, just a a lion, and he did a great job with that. And that's, that is a style of leadership, it is. But Dr. Sem came in after Dr. Borst, and Dr. Sem had a very, um, he had a very different perspective on, on leadership. A lot of his, he was a very quiet man. He would sit in meetings, he would listen, he would listen to everybody's opinion, everybody would talk, and then he would kind of end up getting his way by making everybody think it was their idea. And that was like, I just, it was like pure magic watching that happen because I, he would talk to me before we would go in the meeting with kind of an idea of what he thought would happen, you know, or, or what he kind of would see, what he had in mind, right? Because he'd have some ideas and, um, and then he we would go into the meeting and, you know, he would listen. He was a very attentive listener. He would incorporate all of their ideas and suggestions if they were good. And then he would, you know, figure out how to make it all kind of fit together into this beautiful puzzle. And it was a wonderful technique of leadership that I still quite haven't mastered yet. But um, I, I have a little bit of time left. He's kind of a little further along in life than I am. And Dr. Sem had come from, uh, he was a pharmacist by trade. He was a doctor of pharmacology and he actually had been, he, he had raised $66 million dollars. Uh, for a startup that he had founded out in California kind of before he came to here. So he had, he was a, a very good leader when it came to to business too. Like he was, had a lot of business savvy. He was also getting his, um, his uh, law degree, his JD degree from Marquette at the time um, that we were doing all of this. And that to me is still mind blowing, but he, so he has his MBA, his PhD in pharmacy and uh, his JD so, you know, you might talk about somebody who's got a lot of hats. But for me, I, I just had this wonderful time learning from him. And he was working on building a business school. Like this was something that was most most of my time as his graduate assistant was helping him to build this business school, which, you know, of all things is actually being finished this fall at Concordia. So that's kind of a neat little thing to see it go up. Um, and the whole idea behind the business building was that it was going to be this living monument, this living exhibit and this living museum to Wisconsin entrepreneurs, you know, people who had gone out and built companies that to this day are still big and, and they, he did a great job crafting this all. And so part of my job was to go and research these entrepreneurs to find these people. And there's a lot of them out there. I didn't realize how big Wisconsin was for entrepreneurship for a while. <clears throat> and, uh, so I became his, 
his person who did a lot of the research on this program. And, and for me, it was like I, it was a huge it was a huge gift to do this because I just loved to, to dive into the histories of these entrepreneurs who had many of them had very interesting pasts and they had very unique stories. And, and the whole point of the university building this building was to kind of uh, immortalize them in the exhibits that were built into the, the building itself, which was a cool idea. Um, and I enjoyed that. I really had a good time trying to help build the technology aspect of the university and help build the technology aspect of the building because they wanted to incorporate some of the new technology at the time, like 360 videos. And I knew a little bit about that. And I didn't really know much about it, but I knew enough to kind of learn, teach myself about it. And it was cool. It was it was exciting to to be part of that that thing. And, and Dr. Sam would often have me come in and help design the areas that would be used by the student entrepreneurs because to, I mean, I was the poster child at the time, you know, I'm running my small little entrepreneurship business. Like I was the poster child for that thing for the school. And literally I was in there, the Concordian once talking about this project. So it was, for me, it was a great opportunity to be able to like, to, to talk through all of the different things I wanted the university to do differently when it came to treating people about entrepreneurship and how the school could build uh, this amazing program, which they've done since I left, actually. And so I'd had this this amazing opportunity to help kind of design the building and work with him on on finding donors and getting that all squared away. And, um, you know, I was coming to an end in my time and, you know, as things do. And I wanted to give him a gift. And I had this beautiful leather that I had purchased. And I thought to myself, I, I'm going to make him a book. And many of you have heard this story, by the way. So I'm going to, but I'm going to repeat it here because it's a good story. And I, I knew what he needed um, because he'd been in a lot of meetings, he, 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 because of his nature, he was always the person to volunteer to help. So when everybody had people had problems, like teachers or people had problems with projects, he would help participate in them. So, I mean, he was a man with many, many, many hats that he wore all the time. And so he had a lot of different things. And, you know, I, I joked with him that he had a very interesting filing system, which was kind of put everything everywhere. And to this day, I have a similar filing system actually, and I kind of get it now, but I wanted him to be able to have uh, a notebook and a binder thing that he could figure out how to put, you know, that he could have papers in, right? But that would look nice, right? It would be professional. Uh, it'd be really durable because, I mean, he just was always on the go. It needed to be slim in profile because it needed to be able to go in and out of his well overstuffed briefcase. And uh, it needed to be the kind of thing that that when he carried it into a meeting, it would be what he needed it to be, right? It could be adjustable and, and and be kind of flexible. It would be a platform for him to work off of. That was the idea. And so I sat down and I sketched out a couple ideas. I knew it had to fit regular letter-sized paper. I knew it had to be three-hole punch because, to be honest, that's like, that's the go-to, right? That's, that's the thing that I knew he'd be able to work. And uh, he's an incredibly bright guy, don't get me wrong. But, you know, I think the truth behind really incredibly bright people is that there's just so much going on in their brain that they don't have time to figure out gimmicky things. So I wanted to make the design very straightforward. I knew that it couldn't have moving parts really because if it had a lot of moving parts, it would break because he was always on the go. I knew that it needed to be um, it needed to be aesthetically pleasing because, like I said, he's in meetings with very fancy people, you know, trying to get them to give him the school millions of dollars. So I needed it needed to be professional, and uh, I ended up creating the uh, Murdy Number One Slim Cut. That was I mean I didn't call it that at the time. I didn't I couldn't call it anything. I just gave it to him as a gift. It, it wasn't anything beyond a gift for him. 
I think I actually made three initially. I made one and I was going to give one to him. I was going to give one to uh, Gretchen Jameson, who was the VP of external communications and uh, a wonderful person in her own right. She was quite, quite nice to me and very helpful. And uh, she helped me get connected with a lot of people when I was trying to kind of peddle my wares for Murdy Global. And so <clears throat> I wanted to give her one. I, I gave one to Dr. Ferry, the president of the university. Actually, I, mean, I must have created four because I had one left over that I used. And so those were the original original four, I guess. Um, but <clears throat> the original three were the ones I gave away. I had found a, a laser engraver on the south side of Milwaukee because I knew that I wanted to use a laser engraver because that's the best way to put a logo in things. Uh, it was more precise. It had uh, much more kind of dynamic abilities. And so I I'd contacted the person that, and I, it worked out very well, all things considered. It was, it was shocking how well everything worked, you know, in hindsight. And <clears throat> so what I, w- I did was I had the design figured out. I knew what I wanted it to be. I knew I wanted it laser engraved. And so I contacted this laser engraving shop on the south side of Milwaukee that had this kind of like little homemade website. And I just said to him, I said, I'm looking to do this. And he was like incredibly polite and very helpful. And eventually, um, you know, I just, and I drove down there and I, I dropped him off and I said, you know, I, I know what I'm looking for, right? I know what the power settings and the speed settings I want. Cause it's leather, you know, can you help me out? And he just set his epilogue, which was this fancy $15,000 machine, which obviously had been like, it wasn't being used for much beyond hobbies. So he, he helped me out and it was pretty cheap to all things considered. It was very cheap. <clears throat> and so I said to him, I said, you know, thank you, obviously. And I'll, you know, if I have any, if this comes of anything, I'll have, I'll send you some more business. So I gave these gifts to Dr. Sem, to Gretchen Jameson and to Dr. Ferry. And I don't know if they still have them, but I know Dr. Sem still does because I've seen his recently actually. Um, but Dr. Sem saw them. He liked them so much that he turned around and said, I want to buy 30 of these for all of the professors at the school of business. We're looking to give gifts this year and you know, this, the, these would be perfect because they had the Concordia logo on them. <clears throat> and so I ordered the leather and I hand cut 30 more and I, um, got them engraved. I sent them down to, to, to get them engraved with my friend down on the South side. And all of a sudden I'm like, I had money. Like I had a little bit of money. It was not much, but it was enough. And I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to do something with this. So I bought a little bit more leather and I got, I got rolling on it and I started to make these kind of haphazardly, you know, it was, <clears throat> it was one here and there. There wasn't a lot going on. I used one in my wedding, but it wasn't like we had a, a really serious business in place, but it was the beginnings of what would eventually become the company. And that was, that, that first kind of sale happened in the summer of 2017, but Really, the company didn't get started until February 18th of 2018, in my mind. That's when I that's when I really established the company, and I'll tell you more about that perhaps in the next episode. So I think looking back on, on that moment, there's, there's something that profoundly changes when you start writing in a beautiful journal, when you start doing things in a beautiful journal. For me... Writing in my journal has profoundly changed the way that I do life, everything. I, my journal is never more than a couple feet from me at all times. I sleep with it by my headboard. Every meeting I go to, it's in my hands. And I write constantly. And I found that it, 
it makes life so much easier. It makes things so much better. My, my head is clear. I know what I have to do. I have uh, an organization and it's mine, right? It's not some form that I filled out. It's not some thing that I got off the internet. It's my own system and it developed organically. And building those organic systems of, of organization are so important to clear your head and to be able to organize your life. And for me, I, you know, Dr. Sem was the, the thing that I had, I had drawn my inspiration from. You know, I, I'd drawn inspiration from a lot of places, but, you know, that helped build for me a, a whole framework of design and a whole uh, design philosophy. And that was all about simplicity, functionality, and beauty. And it was all about longevity. We wanted to have something that could help for years and could be a part of someone's life in a more meaningful way. And being part of, you know, this, this journaling culture now that I've kind of joined it, it, it's truly changed me. And I, I'm so glad I'm go, I'm so glad it has because I find myself a smarter, better, more organized person who feels more in control of my life. I don't feel like the order and chaos balance that I had struck before was healthy. But now I can keep the every, the craziness of every day balanced. I can work through the thousand little details that come up in my life. And I think that that was what I was trying to create when I first set out to create that, that first binder. That was my hope. And I didn't realize how profoundly that would affect me later in my life. I really didn't. But those, those little moments, you know, that, that little bit of inspiration created a chain reaction and a chain of events that has absolutely and completely changed my life in ways that I would never have believed possible. And that's why I do what I do. Because if I can create that, that little chain of events, that little moment for you and for those who, who purchase our products, I just, I can't imagine anything better than that. I mean, what more could a person want with their life? Anyway, I am happy to be able to tell this story and I hope that uh, it continues to be interesting for you guys. I think in the next episode, which will probably be the end of the long form for now, we'll go back to the short form soon, but I think in the, the, the third episode, I'm going to talk about the time after college, but before the company got started and then the early days of the company and my time working full time for a big corporation and how that kind of changed the way I looked at a lot of business. Um, and I think that should be interesting too. So I hope you've enjoyed these. I hope that these continue to provide you with value. And for those of you who don't like them, don't worry, they'll be over soon. Thank you for listening. It's I know it's a bit of a, a bit of a story, a bit of a, a narration. And if there's anything else that you want to hear more about, right? If there's a part of the story that you're like, I want to know more about that, and I didn't go in enough detail, uh, let me know. Give me feedback. Uh, it's uh, it really means a lot, and the feedback does does matter to me. So you can reach out to us on the main page of our website at MurdyCreative.co. You can also contact me via Instagram or Facebook. Um, you can text, email, call, direct message, all the usuals. I'll get it back to you as soon as possible. But I appreciate your patience. Um, if you are looking for your any, if you're looking for a journal, a binder, anything else like that, uh, go check us out on our website, MurdyCreative.co. Seriously, it's amazing. If you're a company looking to get your logo on it, we don't have any minimums. We don't have any, uh, we don't have any setup fees. It's just twelve dollars starting, and that's before the bulk discount. So if you get a whole bunch of them, it can even be cheaper than that. So it's just twelve dollars extra to get your logo. It's seven dollars extra to get your name. So. 
Check them out on the website. Thanks so much for listening. Goodbye.